Welcome back to The Re-Education. In today's show, we are looking at the geopolitics of Purim, the Jewish holiday that celebrates the triumph of Jews in the ancient Persian Empire over Haman, someone who tried to kill them. In part because last the last episode of The Re-Education had such a long monologue, there will be no formal monologue on this one, and we will go straight to the conversation. My guest is the great Rabbi Ari Lamb, the official rabbi of the re-education podcast and it is a great conversation so without further ado please enjoy welcome back to the re-education we've got third time returning guest on a you know audience favorite superstar the chief rabbi of the re-education podcast ari lamb Applause, applause, applause. Thank you so much for coming back. I'm just so excited to uh, to be in my pulpit. <laughs> Here we go. Anyway, the topic of today's show is we like to get into the geopolitics. And Ari is, Rabbi, Rabbi Lamb is in a unique position here because he does have that pinch, Princeton PhD and can give us not just the religious context, but also the historical context, what we know. So let's, we're here to talk today about the holiday that we is upon us, Purim, but I, I kind of want to demystify it. Like, let's let's do a little level setting. First of all, Purim is this one, one of the few holidays in Judaism where you're just allowed to get plastered, right? <laughs> that is definitely one approach and a, pre- and a prevalent and, as you can imagine, popular one. That's for sure. And it's seen as kind of like a fun time because they're the noisemakers. There's special cookies called humintosh. And it's a festive thing. Like the Jews, and you know, escaped a horrible fate. So, you know, I want to try to cut through some of that because it's a serious time as well. And it's about the politics, you could argue, of diaspora. So let's first of all talk about Jews in the ancient Persian Empire and what that's, what that means, because this is after the first temple is destroyed. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. This takes place, and actually, interestingly enough, what makes this story so fascinating is that it takes place after the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem for the first time. That happens in 586 BC. Now, those are the Babylonians. Babylonians destroy the temple, send the, the, the Jews into exile. Then the Persian Empire of Cyrus the Great fame conquers the Babylonian Empire and kicks off a process of allowing the Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And this process becomes completed under the Emperor Darius, who comes kind of two emperors or two in change because there's a usurper in the middle, but two emperors in change after Cyrus. Darius's son and heir is Xerxes. And Xerxes is the main character, is sort of like the main royal character of the Book of Esther, which undergirds the story of Purim and in whose reign the story of Purim is set. But the reason I mention this is because from a chronological perspective, Esther actually takes place after Jews have already gone back to the land of Israel and rebuilt the temple. So when Esther takes place, there's a temple standing in the land of Israel. That's important, right. Yeah. Right. So we've already had Ezra and Nehemiah going back to Jerusalem. So this is a, and per- so this is purging a, the intermarried families in some ways, right? They, right. So this yeah. right. So this is a quintessential diaspora Judaism story, right? A diaspora Jewry story because it takes place when Jews living in diaspora is I wouldn't put it a ch- as a choice. It's not a choice in the way that it's I suppose a choice today, but it certainly is. It certainly is 
cognitively and emotionally dissonant because you have a whole population of Jews, a small one, but a significant one that's back in the land of Israel with a temple, right? Yeah. Fully, fully built. Okay. The other thing I want to get into here before we get into the actual story is let's talk a little bit about the ancient Persians who have gotten very bad press for 3,000 years because of the Greeks or, more, or almost 3,000 years because of mainly this guy named Herodotus, who was a great traveler, but was he was a Greek and he, you know, Herodotus had his views. And so the Persian, the ancient Persians are the, that's the great power that fights with the Athenians and of course the Spartans and the story of what the 300, it's, this is all about Persia versus the great Greek city-states. And so in the West, Western civilization tends to sort of see the Greeks sometimes as what friend of the pod, Dan Carlin, would call the home team in terms of civilization or ancient <laughs> history. But that's not really true. And maybe I want to just like, let's give Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes their due. They were a real advance from the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the other great powers of the region that came before them. And they did some pretty impressive things. I mean, you have to judge them within context, but let's just talk a little bit about the ancient Persians and... They had an incredibly impressive empire. They probably invented the idea that there would be something of a postal service. They were able to manage huge geographic territory. And they were also like not, they weren't horrible when it came to other people practicing whatever religions they wanted. They were tolerant, you could say, as long as you paid your taxes. In kind of the Persia versus Greece battle royale cage match, I am very much team Persia. So so you've co- <laughs> so you've come to the right place. Right. First of all, just from like a you know, not judging in context perspective, like even if you're just asked purely on a on a modern anachronistic basis to choose between kind of the Persians, like we like to think of it as the Persians versus the Athenians. And the Athenians are enlightened and there's a republic. And yeah, sure, there are problems with it, you know, and they they don't include everybody, but it's, you know, this imperial force versus the versus this republican force. Guess what? The Spartans were part of this also. And that's one of the most brutal slave societies that's ever existed in the history of humanity. If they had a committee <laughs> in Sparta yeah. Yeah. to inspect newborns. And if you didn't pass muster, they would put you on a mountain and leave you to die. Yeah. Picked so, a, I mean, that's it's hardcore. And they also, by the way, their children, (laughs) young boys would be taken from their families at age seven and join like what be equivalent of like a military unit or a company. And they would basically that would be that's their I mean, that's if you can imagine seven years old. okay, you're going to go off and learn how to be a soldier now. (laughs) And also like. Right. And also like there's this entire (laughs) massive underclass of people in Sparta called the Helots. Yes. Who are just these. These permanent, unbelievably degraded slaves. So it's it's a uh, anyway. So, which all of which is to say that it's it's if you're looking for for good guys and bad guys in a kind of Robert Jordanian sense, you're not going to find them here. Okay, but on the other hand, yes, the Spartans are totally outnumbered in the famous battle. What is it, Thermopylae? Is that it? And what do they say? Like they're they're exchanging messages and they're like, you know, yield or you know, we'll spare you. Like you could take our weapons from our cold dead hands. It's like right. So there is something about the Spartans in that they just had like unthinkably incredible resilience and courage in the face of great danger. Uh, For sure. So So I don't want to like, I mean, yes, I agree with you. There are a lot of things that we look at and we're like, oh my God, I can't believe 
you know, yeah. they had that committee inspecting the babies and stuff like that. Right, right. right. So, so the Persians create this incredibly efficient and, and in many ways modern kind of bureaucracy. With, yeah, they with real, sort of, with you real could argue state. they invented bureaucracy or they invented yeah, like with empire bureaucracy kind of. And like, and not just like an empire, but an empire with real state capacity, not yeah. anything approaching that we would think of from, you know, say the industrial revolution or, or, or post-Renaissance, but they, they kind of invent state capacity. And as oh, just really quick, out, just for the audience, what do you mean by state capacity? Just the ability to get things done over a large amount of territory, right. whether it's a postal service, whether it's whether it's a system of of governorship that kind of the the emperor has some ability to relate to. They, they're just able to get stuff done for people in a way that was not unprecedented, but that was very unusual in the ancient world. They really get stuff done for people. And just to and give an example like of part, that. And, People um, like being part of the Persian right. Empire. Just to give you an example of that, in the famous Persian invasion of the Greek, they they basically create what, this incredible land bridge that linked Asia to Europe by tying together. I mean, that, it's an amazing feat of engineering if you think about it from the ancient world. Just an important concept is that the Persian Empire really, yeah, you're. It's like a huge advance in what a government was able to do. It wasn't just collecting taxes. The way that they come to power or the way that that the Persian Empire becomes a thing, right? Because in the sixth century, the Neo-Babylonian Empire has conquered the world. Nebuchadnezzar, the famous hanging gardens, you know, yeah. this is this is a, a world empire or at least one of the largest ones the world has seen. And the possibility that their power might somehow be broken, the power of Babylon might be broken, just seemed impossible. Right. You had Egypt kind of as a holdout. To the to the southwest, but other than that, they seemed unstoppable. And somehow, some like backwater herdsmen from the well, known from, as the Medes, right? These were originally they were called the Medes. Well, even before the Medes, so so the yeah. median the median kind of empire con, kind of becomes like a constituent part of the Babylonian Empire. Right. But there's some like tiny little farmer Cyrus from a city in the backwoods of of like Iran, Iraq, named An, called Anshan. And from Anshan emerges this tribesman, this tribal leader, Cyrus. And against all odds, within a couple of years, he conquers the entire Babylonian empire. How? Now, the answer is, Calvary, is that. right? Well, yes, but he, but in, in addition to just prow, like military prowess, strategic acumen, he also has incredible diplomatic and political skill. And what he does is he's able to marshal allies to his side from within the Babylonian Empire itself by right. essentially, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't like, you know, a, an election or a political race, but running on a platform of essentially religious toleration. Because In the words of the Beatles, running on a platform of let it be. Yes. If you want to if you want to worship a sky god, worship a sky god. If you want to worship a water god, worship a water god. You want to worship Elohim? Go ahead. Just pay right. your taxes and we're good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And the reason that's important is because the Babylonians had kind of forgotten this. And what he accuses, and you can actually see if you go to the British Museum, for example. I, I was, was going to say something. I was recently at the British Museum. Everybody should go. It's, oh, it's so amazing. You, <laughs> you see the actual reliefs in their original. You sort of can see them at scale. It's incredible. I absolutely have to go. Yeah. 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 It's it's pretty unbelievable. So, if you go to the British Museum, I believe that's where it is now. I think the two times ago when I was there was on loan to somebody else. But if you go there now, it should be there. The Cyrus Cylinder, 
it's this it's this incredible discovery of a diplomatic text that Cyrus had authored that basically describes his strategy as he's going and conquering the Babylonian Empire. And in it, he accuses the the last of the Babylonian emperors, Nabonidus, the Greeks called him Nabunaid. He accuses Nabonidus, and this is Nabonidus's reputation, of attempting to destroy the religious vitality of the peoples within the Babylonian Empire, including the city of Babylon itself. He removes Babylon's tax-exempt status. He he creates kind of, you know, new. he kind of like disperses the temples of Babylon and tries to create new centralized ones that he would control elsewhere in the empire. And the Babylonians had kind of created a policy of exile and destruction that had removed lots of ancestral people, peoples from their ancestral homes. They destroyed lots of temples. So Cyrus is conquering the empire on the basis of a of an approach that we could describe, I think, fairly as kind of the beginning of toleration. He says, I just want people to go back to their lands uh, to worship their gods. It's good for everybody. And one of the peoples that becomes the beneficiary of this approach are the Jews. And the Jews are very conscious of this. So if you look at kind of the latter half of biblical prophetic literature, or if you look at some of the historical writings, you mentioned Ezra and Nehemiah before. So if you look at those writings, you'll see the 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 fundamental crucial question that drives Jewish people, or, or at least one of the most important ones, that drives Jewish discussion during this period is, what do we make of Cyrus, right? So you have on the one hand, this kind of, either he was Zoroastrian or, pre, you know, proto-Zoroastrian but this kind of this pagan conqueror who wants what he wants for idolatrous reasons. And, you know, should should we go back to our land? Should we be aided in going back to our land by people who don't share our our exact values and people who with whom we have very strong disagreements about the nature of the cosmos and so forth? And so you have a whole group of people who seem to, you know, a whole group of Jews who seem to say we can't go back to the land of Israel unless the situation is is politically and religiously and theologically perfect. And then you have the, so that seems to be kind of the majority of Jews seem to feel this way. Against them, you have all of the Bible, basically. So all of the prophets of the Bible who are arguing, what are you talking about? This is, you know, it's like there's a, there's kind of a, an old, I, I grew up with it as a Jewish joke, but it may be a, a wide, you know, maybe a wider joke. The joke is that a guy, you know, a guy says he, his biggest, you know, wish in life is to win the lottery. So he prays every single day. He recites psalms and and liturgy, and nothing happens. So so finally, you know, he gets to the, you know, he gets to, he passes away. He gets to heaven. He approaches the throne of glory and he says to God, he goes, "What happened? Like I prayed every single day." And God says, "Did you buy a ticket?" <laughs> <laughs> so I love that. That's a great joke. That's right. Great, so, yeah. so what, so what the prophets are saying is guys, like I, here's your ticket. I'm giving you a ticket. Well, it's, it's, like, so, it's such an interesting parallel to like the debates within the, the diaspora in the times of like pre 48 and Zionism, you know, in the 20th century, because, you know, there were lots of critics of Herzl. There were lots of critics of Ben-Gurion and Jabotinsky. They're like, what do you, I don't, why do we want to go back there? And, you know, there's all kinds of, it's a similar kind of thing. And you, there is, a, there are, there's a segment I forget there are some very religious Jews who 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 dis who hate Israel in some ways, but there's other there's another view that it's like we're uncomfortable calling it the Jewish state until you know the Mashiach returns or something. You know. Yeah, exactly. So what? So 
you have the you know the second half of the book of Isaiah is dedicated basically entirely to this question of critics who say we shouldn't trust Cyrus or we shouldn't ally with Cyrus. And Isaiah's perspective is you're out of your mind. And right. and it's blasphemous, meaning who's to say that that you know the God of Israel can't be the one who raised Cyrus out of the east and allow this whole kind of miracle of a conquest to happen. And then when you look in the book of of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people with that attitude, right? The attitude that says, you know what, we're not going back. We're gonna stay, we're gonna stay in the Persian diaspora because this whole thing is not, this whole project is not for us. Those people, the people who stay back, are actually compared to the Egyptians. Oh wow. And, That's great. And, yeah, well, there were Jews that didn't go with Moses into okay. Precisely. And yeah. you can and listen, you read kind of the Bible, or if you've just watched the Ten Commandments, or if you've watched Joseph's Technicolor, whatever. You always, you know, there's that classic biblical character of like the naysayers, right? The people who, the people who are doubting the things that are going on before their very eyes. And some of it is out of fear, out of complacency. Now, the reason I mention that is because the very Jews, and this is why the Bible is such a, I mean, again, even if it's not for you a theological text, just a literary masterwork, is because in the book of Ezra, the people who are described as basically the Egyptians the Egyptian taskmasters and right. Those are the Jews who are staying back in Persia mm -hmm. and Esther. Those Jews are the heroes. And uh, right. Yeah. Right. That's, right. that's fascinating. And so what you have to grapple with, what you have to grapple with is the question of, okay, what is the heroism that's being described in, in Egypt and how does it relate to the question of Jews and their relationship to the land of Israel? How does it relate to the question of what it means to be a diaspora community, Jewish or otherwise, now, because this is such a difficult question to resolve, although I have my my thoughts about it, one of the, you know, one of the increasingly popular contemporary readings of the book of Esther, though I think it's completely wrong, is to say, well, Esther is actually just a parody. Now, Esther definitely has parodic elements in it and satirical elements in it, unquestionably, and we can talk about those. It's a satire on Persian society to an extent, but the this reading goes farther and says the entire point like esther tries to make you think like these jews are heroes but really the whole point of the book is to say that life in persia is bad and you should just go back to israel that's a that's a contemporary reading of the book of esther and it's and it exists even though it has very little textual support it exists if, if any it exists because there's a real sense today of dissonance like what do we do with this one odd book in the Bible that seems focused on the diaspora in a way that that is very unselfconscious, right? Like the book of Daniel is set in the diaspora, the end of the book of Kings set in the diaspora, but they're very self-conscious of that. Esther seems very unselfconscious. What do we do with a book like that? And that's kind of, that's what makes Esther so fascinating. Well, I mean, a couple points I just want to make is that I, just to emphasize, to go back to Cyrus for just a second, just to make it clear, before Cyrus, it was normal in the ancient world that if you conquered a people, you would take the idol of their god back with you to your home capital. So there was a sense that it wasn't just these two armies that were fighting in the mortal plane, but there was a cosmic element too. Your god failed, and now... Your God is going to be in, what's the Syrian capital? 
yeah, or know, whatever, right? Exactly. Or, so it's or, like or you know what I'm saying. We're you know we we use I, you used to 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 worship this guy, and now he's yeah. now he's ours. So the revolution of the Jewish religion is there's only one, and he is or you know the being is everything, and it's responsible for everything. So the it's and that concept is so revolutionary in the. So in some ways, even though Cyrus is not obviously Jewish and he doesn't believe in this kind of monotheistic force, the fact that he's tolerant and he's saying, all right, everybody has their own path up the mountain, so to speak, is itself a really huge leap. I, that's, so I just wanted to emphasize that. And it does lead now to what we're going to talk about, which is the Book of Esther, because it is like, well, what's the difference? And my humble, and I, but I have you on as the expert, my humble view is... <laughs> The difference between the Jewish experience in exile in Egypt versus the Jewish experience in Persia is that the Jews are slaves in Egypt. And in Persia, they're not slaves. Not to say that they're necessarily like, you know, they're obviously the Persian royal family is the ruling family, but it's a different relationship. And the fact that Esther has all of this influence is a testament to that. Do you think I'm wrong on that or no? I think one of the ways to show or to substantiate what you're saying is to note, and again, here's where it's really important to understand the poetics of, of, of biblical literature. So the way that biblical literature works is that in contrast to, let's say, contemporary English style, so English is a language that just has a massive vocabulary, a massive vocabulary. And not only is the vocabulary large, but it's compounded by the fact that the English that we speak is kind of the product of the collision between kind of like the Germanic Saxon languages and then, the you know, like Norman French, right? So the Romance languages. Yeah. So, sure. you know, as Orwell was fond of pointing out, because he hated all the Norman expressions, right? But like as, as Orwell was fond of pointing out, there are basically two, at least two words for everything in English. There's a Germanic word and a, and a French, you know, and a Norman word. Right. And he preferred, you know, use the Saxon word. But but either way, we have a massive vocabulary. So a mark of of good style is to use varied language in order to express ideas very evocatively. And if you want to parody good style, you know, it would, you know, there would be like that Friends episode where Joey just used like, you know, puts puts the letter that he's writing for Monica and Chandler's adoption through a thesaurus and it just sounds non like nonsense, right? But basically you would want to use a lot of different words. You basically want to use a different word for everything. Right. Biblical Hebrew and like like lots of ancient Semitic languages is a very small vocabulary. And moreover, it's a it's a genre that's meant to be performed orally. And so the way that that good style gets accomplished is by using words, using words repetitively and using them in a way that forces you to think about a certain theme over and over and over again. The best contemporary example of this kind of style is actually hip hop. Right. So if you listen to if you listen to enough hip hop. So first of all, you know, you'll notice even within a single song, you'll notice rhyme schemes where the last word of every line is exactly the same. And it's the word before that word that rhymes. Yep. Right. So but and that's meant to kind of give you it's both like a good kind of performance device, but it also kind of gets you to think about the theme of what that, you know, that stanza yeah. is talking but about. Tom, Tom Wolf does this, too. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Great effect in my view. Yeah. And another piece of hip hop that that you'll recognize is that oftentimes you'll see you'll see a line in a hip hop song that's actually taken or that's taken from or or a revised version or an allusion to some other song, right? So you'll see that often like Kendrick will often, you know, sneakily refer to lines from Tupac 
And you yep. can understand the song even without knowing the reference. But if you know the reference, it's so much richer. Sure. Right. So and the reason for that is because hip hop is much like much like the Bible, a very it's meant to be performative. So all of which is to say that if you're reading biblical literature, you have to be on the lookout for those key words, those repetitions, those allusions. Now, in the book of Esther, one of the clearest set of allusions, really like in all of the Bible, it's so explicit, is that the story refers over and over and over and over again to the Joseph story, as in Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Which so is how they get ways, into Egypt, right? Right. Precisely. Oh, right. So uh, that's why we I, have a, that's why the chief rabbi is the chief rabbi, everybody. <laughs> All right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example, right? So look at the book of Esther. It starts with the king, right? Xerxes, you know, Ahasuerus making a party. And the verse tells us that in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. So in Hebrew, the, the, that's, that's in the third year, the f- word for third is shalosh. He gave a feast. The, the phrase for he gave a feast is asamishte. And for all his officials and servants, they're called avadav, his servants. That same description, almost word for word, appears in the Joseph story, right? On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants. On the third day, shalosh, Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants, avadav. So you have all three of those elements that are repeating right there. Why? Because right from the jump, the Bible wants us to know that the book of Esther is a a Joseph story. Now, throughout the book, different characters are compared to Joseph. So Esther is linked directly to Joseph. The, The best example of this is right when we meet Esther for the very first time. It's like, it's weird. If you read through the book of Esther, it almost seems very unbiblical because the very first thing we hear about Esther is that she's she's Mordecai's relative and she's really good looking, right? right? And it's like, oh, what, what's up, Bible? <laughs> and the and although her beauty will come into play kind of later on in the chapter, like, but much later on in the chapter when she's sort of part of a beauty contest, you know, in this kind of like weird coercive harem building thing. Normally in biblical literature, you would expect a detail like that to be introduced right before it becomes relevant. That's what the Bible normally does. Why does the Bible tell us she's good looking? The reason is because it uses the exact same language to describe her looks that the Bible uses back in the Joseph story to describe Joseph's looks. And the reason that Joseph's looks are relevant is because immediately in that story, he's accosted by his master's wife, similar similar to Esther, right? It's assaulted kind of by royalty, as it were. And so Esther is immediately compared to Joseph. And, and, and Mordecai is also compared to Joseph later in the story. The interesting thing is that another character who's compared to Joseph is Haman. Haman right, is also we gotta, to We got to do a little level setting here. Yes. So we should just say that these are two different stories, but like the, the great play by Sophocles, Lysistrata, has some similarities here to the Book of Esther in that they both involve the power of, let's just call it, feminine charm. And the in the case of Lysistrata, it was it was the refusal of the women of Athens to have sex with their husbands until the war was stopped. And in the case of Esther, it was the fact that she's this beautiful woman who influences the king to spare the Jews. So and who is the one who's got who's the advisor who's on the other side of this? Well, it's Haman who builds gallows for all the Jewish citizens. Right. And his and his plan is on a particular day of the year, he gets the king's authority to declare sort of like a day of rage where everybody in the empire gets to slaughter as many Jews as they want. A pogrom. 
Yes, like a massive, massive Or like Kristallnacht. I mean, we see it again and again in Jewish history, yes. Right, and his plan, as he states explicitly, is to, and, you know, (laughs) you don't even have to, you don't even have to, I mean, you could see this plan. People have tried this throughout history. In in fact, the 20th century is just the latest example. His plan is just to eradicate this, this strange and scattered nation. Okay, now, I, I want to just ask a question. Can we, now that we're talking about Haman. Yeah. What are the motivations? Who is this guy and why does he want to kill all the Jews? Great question. Let me actually answer that by returning really quickly to the okay. Joseph point because oh, I want to, because yeah, it, it'll help build it okay. out. So Haman, who's this mega villain, is also compared to Joseph. The language used to describe him is also used to describe Joseph. Why? What Esther's wrestling with, and this helps explain Haman as well, what Esther's wrestling with is the question of power and how to use it. Now, like one of the, you know, one of the classic, one of the classic questions about the book of Esther is that there actually is one character who never appears in the entire book of Esther. And that is who appears regularly throughout the Bible. And that is God. God is not mentioned one time, even one time in the book of Esther, the entire book of Esther. Why not? And I think the answer is because Esther's focus is on politics and political power. And in Esther, it's we, God's creatures, who fight evil through a willingness to wield political power. Yeah, yeah, I see that. And this is actually one way, it's not the only way, but it's one way to read the Joseph story, right? So Joseph, just for a very, very brief context, Joseph is, you know, if you've ever seen Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat, right? So Joseph gets sold into Egyptian slavery by his family, by his brothers, rather. He ends up, you know, descending into prison and then rises. He's able to be freed from prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams about the geopolitical future of the national and geopolitical future of Egypt. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph and his, not only his, his spiritual sensitivities, but his political acumen that he appoints him to be grand vizier over the entire country. Joseph shepherds the country through several years of famine and then through a, you know, through a happenstance ends up being reunited with his family. And that's how the Jews actually end up in Egypt, setting up the return of the Jedi in the book of Exodus, where the Jews are slaves in Egypt. So Joseph is kind of like this figure who who's displaced from his homeland and who succeeds in a foreign political environment, is able to actually make his way. And so Joseph, you know, in the book of Esther's reading of that story, Joseph knew there's no virtue in turning up your nose at power. God cared what happened to Egypt, right, about the kind of society it became. So Joseph had a responsibility to use his power in Pharaoh's court for good. Now, as the book of Esther suggests, Joseph's power is also a double-edged sword. So Esther and Mordecai could wield it humbly for virtuous ends, but Haman, the villain, could also seize power and use it to spread hatred and bigotry and foment genocide. So in the end, first of all, it turns out that God does appear in the book of Esther. He's revealed in the choices that we make. And you can choose to be an Esther or Mordecai. You can choose to be a Haman. It's actually the same process by which to get there. Well, there isn't like an actual scene like where, you know, there isn't like a God appears and says, okay, Abraham, I was just kidding. You don't have to kill your own son. Right. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. It was more like you're saying it indirectly. And in fact, if you look in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible made several centuries later, and that, you know, many of the Greek, rather, uh, the Christian churches used to this to this very day, the Orthodox Church, etc. The Septuagint version of Esther 
just adds a ton of stuff. It has Mordecai, it has Mordecai praying and oh, fasting. It has, yeah, it has all this stuff that makes it a much more pious story. None of that is present in the actual Hebrew of the book. So I mentioned this in order to answer your question about hey, can Haman. Can I ask a like, question about the Septuagint? It's just, I'm yeah, yeah, let's do it. it. Because it's Greek translation, do you find the Herodotus problem where it's like, come on, I think he's he's putting his thumb on the scale. They weren't that terrible. They weren't that lazy. They weren't that effeminate. You know what I mean? Like if you read Herodotus, sometimes his <laughs> descriptions of like things that he encountered, you know, the stories he's heard about the court of the Persians is like, it's a bacchanalia. It's like this orgy <laughs> of like, you know, disgusting behavior and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I don't think you you get too much exaggeration of 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 the Persians in the Greek version of the story compared to the Hebrew version, but you know, that's because the Hebrew version is is already a pretty strong indictment of Persian society. Right. The the best probably the the, mo the most most humorous example of that is the word that appears more often in the book probably Sorry. than any other word. Well, one one of the words that appears very often is the word dat which actually is a Persian loan word into Hebrew, which means law. And everything in Persian society, according to the Book of Esther, is done according to the law. You know, Mordecai is prosecuted according to the law. Then Haman is prosecuted according to the law. The king has to act according to the law. So in the beginning of the book, we're told that everything gets done according to the law, including in Hebrew, kadat, which means okay. they got drunk according to the law. Right. The idea being that in Persia, Everything is lawful, even when people are getting plastered. It's, it's right. It's, right. That's, exact, that's how you're supposed to get plastered in Persia. So it's kind of like a mockery of a of a rule of law society. But you're asking, like, where does Haman come from? What's his What's his thing? Um, yeah. Like, he, so, by the way, one of the one of the things we know about him, he has a triangle hat, and that's why the homentagen or Hamentagen are little triangle cookies with delicious fillings. Uh, there's a sweet <laughs> poppy called mun or apricot or cherry. It's all great. Anyway, yeah, pr prune is I'm, I'm partial to, which sure. I know sounds strange. But so Haman, you can kind of ex you can kind of understand his behavior mm -hmm. purely because descriptively he tells us he tells us what he's doing. For example, he's he he is insulted. The inciting incident in the book is he gets elevated to this place of massive power within the royal bureaucracy he's he's he becomes the second to the king much like joseph becomes second to pharaoh and everybody is bowing and scraping before him and then he goes outside and he notices that only one person isn't bowing to him and isn't kowtowing and it's mordecai and he says this dirty jew is going to get his so he goes to the king and he says as part of his stratagem to be able to execute mordecai he says not only am i going to punish this person i'm going to punish his whole people so he says to the king you know, there's this there's this one scattered and and nomadic nation within your borders, and they're a fifth column, as it were, and they we'd be better off without them. We should wipe them out. And the king kind of says to Haman, whose star is, is risen by, is this, by that this time, is, this is Xerxes, who, right, by the way, of, is a great three hundred fame. Right? <laughs> no, I mean, but also one of the, I mean, it's there are three really great emperors of persian empire it's cyrus darius and xerxes so right so xerxes it's unclear reading the book of of esther whether xerxes is meant to be an idiot or whether he's meant to be kind of like crazy like a fox mm -hmm. and both readings you could sustain now what happens is haman kind of has this uh, kind of has this uh, this plot 
to wipe out the entire Jewish people. And it's like a scary speech, right? He says, there's a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They don't keep the king's laws. It's not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. And if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction. And I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who, you know, conduct the king's business so that they can put it into the king's... He basically bribes the king into, into, into destroying the Jews. And by the way, just because you mentioned Xerxes. So Xerxes is a well-known Persian emperor, but he's not necessarily a successful Persian emperor, at least in the sense that his, his foreign adventurism basically bankrupts Persia. And part of the logic of the Esther story, even though it doesn't mention Xerxes' yeah, why would, why would the king of Why would the great king of kings need... Exactly. Because they used to call... They, they called Cyrus the king of kings. I mean, that was the... Yes, and the Persian emperors right. are called the right in Middle Persian it's called the Shahan Shah, the 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 king the, of kings, the Shah of Shahs. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so the idea, but anyway, right? It's like this is so Haman basically takes advantage of Xerxes's geopolitical adventurism in order to pull off this this plot. Now, your question was different, not what was his justification, but why. And the answer, the fascinating answer, is that the Bible does not give us an answer. We never have a point of view. We, we never get like a story other than that stupid thing with Mordecai, like he didn't bow and like that's going to set him off. There had to have been something else, right? I mean, yeah, we never we never hear we, we like, never get we, the like Hitler didn't get into art school and that's why he became a horrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we never got that one. Like if only Heyman had just been like, you know, stuck with his sculpting or something. <laughs> right, right. Now we and we get like tiny little glimpses into Heyman's emotional state. Like we'll get, you know, when he sees when he sees Mordecai refusing to refusing to bow to him. So we're told, you know, in Hebrew, and Haman was filled with anger. But other than that, we get no, it's, you know, like if you read Song of Ice and Fire, you get each chapter from the point of view of a different character. We get nothing like that here. Right. Nothing. Okay, right. And that's one of, by the way, the big differences between Greek literature and biblical literature is that we don't get, the Bible really refuses to give us that easy way out of seeing the interiority of a, of a human person. And so the question then becomes, what is Haman after? And the answer seems to be, by, by again, by not telling us, the Bible actually sort of articulates what you might call the, the dark and terrifying mystery of anti-Semitism. Thank you. That's a very important point, which is that it's scarier... When you don't know, like if, if there was some like way you could say, OK, listen, Haman's upset because when he was 11 years old, Jews did this. And then, you know, and if we just don't do that or if we just keep an eye on that, then we can maybe deal with anti-Semitism. The lesson is there's always going to be people who wanted to kill all the Jews. Right. That's the lesson. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, get used to it. There's always going to be Haman's. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the. And then the second piece of that is once he has this, again, dark, terrifying, mysterious hatred, the question is, how does he act on it? And the way that he acts on it is through political power. So one, one reading of Esther, which is really just a reading of the Joseph story, is to, is to say, okay, here's a story about how power is wielded. And it can be wielded for... And it can be wielded for great evil, like Haman wields political power for evil. But rather than opposing the wielding of political power because political power is bad, what Mordecai and Esther do 
is they actually wield political power for good. So I want to just, I want to get, this is such an important point, Rabbi, and I want to drill down on it because this gets into something deeper than politics. It gets into this view that some religious people will say that God is the author of all of history. And to a certain extent, because if you believe that God is the creator of the universe and God is, you know, every knows everything and we can't possibly understand what God understands and we have to have humility, all that, okay, fine. But this is a story that's about how humans have agency in history and that politics is not predetermined, that you can't just lock yourself up in the shul and study all day because there is a world out there and it matters if you influence people in positions of power and it will have a huge effect. And that's kind of what the story is about. So it gets to that really important thing because there's this, I think there's a, in my view, a, a simplistic and kind of stupid argument that sometimes people say is how could God exist if the Holocaust is allowed to happen, right? People say that all the time. How could God exist with all this terrible evil in the world? Well, you know, the, the serious answer to that is, well, yes, you can believe in God as somebody who is a kind of creator and is maybe in everything and all of us, but it's, we have agency in the world. It matters what the humans do. Is that a lesson here, you think? I'm going to tell you something humorous and then I'm going to tell you something serious. Okay. The Thank humorous you. piece is again, this this also might be like a well-known joke, but I grew up with it. It's a guy who's living in a house and it starts to flood and yeah. the waters are rising. He starts praying to God and he says, rescue me from this, from these floodwaters, perform a miracle and, and save me from these floodwaters. The water keeps rising. Finally, the water is so high that he has to go, that he has to kind of stand on the tables. All of a sudden, a, you know, the rescuers come by, you know, in a, in a little rowboat. They say, hey, listen, let us rescue. Let's take you away from this house. And he says, no, God will save me. And he yeah. stands at his table and he's praying to God. He gets up. The water keeps rising. He goes up to the roof. Finally, the, the you know, a, a, a speedboat comes by. He says, yeah, let's yeah. rescue. He says, no, God will save me. He gets to the very roof of his house. A helicopter comes by. Let's save you. He says, no, God will save me. Finally, the waters rise and he drowns. And, and he, he goes, goes up yeah, to God yeah, and, he's, and he says, God, what happened? I was praying to you. I was so pious, so righteous. He says, what do you, I sent you the robot. I sent you a speedboat. <laughs> I sent you a helicopter. Yeah. Well, what do you want from me? Right. So yeah. uh, now to make a, a serious point, I remember Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, the, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom and one of the foremost Jewish public intellectuals of, of this in the last century was once asked that question as every, you know, kind of theologian is asked. Where was God during the Holocaust? Now, his answer to that was, first of all, if anyone tells you they have an answer to that question, they're an idiot and a charlatan. Sure, sure. Um, I agree, by the way. I, want to say, I wasn't trying to say I had an answer. Right, right. No, of course. And I, I, I know you know. I know you yeah, think yeah. that too, right? Yeah. He says, however, if I had to say something, because you have to say something, if I had to say something, I would say that if you asked God, where were you during the Holocaust? God's answer would be, where was I during the Holocaust? I was the one who sent down tablets from literal heaven with Moses that said, thou shalt not kill. Where was I during the Holocaust? Where were you during the Holocaust? Right. And the reason that's so powerful, particularly, I think, within a biblical or a Jewish framework is because the entire premise of the Bible is that the telos of creation, the purpose of creation is that God wants a relationship with with something within his creation. You can't have a relationship, uh, God can't have a relationship with plants, you can't have a relationship with elephants, and you can't have a relationship with, with beetles. Why? Because a relationship requires two free people 
to approach each other with mutuality. And the only way to therefore have a relationship is to have two beings that are free participating in it freely. And so what God does at the very end of creation in the Genesis story is he creates the only free being in the entire creation. And God makes a gamble and says, in order for me to have a relationship with something in this creation, I need to allow it to be free. If I allow it to be free, it might choose evil. But the price of therefore having a relationship with humanity is that humanity might choose impiously and unjustly. So in some cases, some of the greatest evil ever is a result of that bargain, of that bet that says you can be free because I want a relationship with you, but you might do terrible things with it. Now, I think where this where this points us is towards politics, right? Because what you can do is you can look at politics and say it's grimy and it's dirty and it corrupts anybody who touches it. I think much like you could say about human freedom, right? Human freedom is terrible and it and it and it makes us worse off than even the the meanest insect because look at the kinds of things that we can do. Right? It's like that classic kind of it's like that cla- it's like that Sunny Bunch. Sunny Bunch has this piece where he's like a be- he's like environmentalists often sound like like superhero villains because they want to make your life like they actively want to make your life worse, right? It's like yeah. a it's a funny piece. But, you know, there's a there's a reason why, you know, there's this particular type of like very extreme environment related argument, which is like, well, we're the only species that's like ruined the planet. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, like that's the, you know, if, if you look at only the downsides of humanity, then we make worse choices than beetles because beetles don't make choices. Well, it, it gets so, to another thing, though, too, which is that God is not interested in just creating if God created a human, you know, people without free will and they had no choice but to worship God or then your point is like they wouldn't have this relationship. And it says something about Judaism. Judaism is the one great monotheistic religion that doesn't recruit and doesn't compel people to join the religion. Right. Because the whole point is, is that you you have to choose the the righteous path yourself. And it, by the way, that is different than Christianity and Islam, where it's very important that, you know, one way or the other, you're going to join the flock, you know, and, and it, I think right. that that's like, that's one of the, if that is a unique characteristic of the Jewish people. I think the, the most unique, yeah, the most unique part of it is that in, in Jewish eschatology, which means kind of the Jewish understanding of the end of days, like how does the story end? Right. The story doesn't end like uniquely, the story doesn't end with everybody converting to Judaism. There's no, there's no tradition within the, within the Jewish heritage that says people will convert to Judaism. People will have their own relationship with God rooted in their own history and their own story and their own unique skills and talents. But to kind of get back to it, so, you know, you can look at politics the same way you look at at human free will, which is that it's a disaster. Interestingly, the Bible, and this goes back to the Joseph story, actually describes politics in the following way. So when Joseph is appointed sort of the chief politician of Egypt, right? The second in command to Pharaoh, who's going to be responsible for running the entire Egyptian economic policy and social policy. The way that that is described is Pharaoh says, Pharaoh says that he's looking for a person to fill this role who is Chacham Vinavon, which in English means wise and understanding. 
And those nouns in biblical Hebrew, chokhmah and binah, wisdom and understanding, that's how the Bible describes politics, not just in the Joseph story, but elsewhere, like in Proverbs. What else does the Bible describe as wisdom and understanding, chokhmah or binah? The Bible itself. So the Bible's own self-understanding is that why is the Bible so important? Well, Moses in Deuteronomy says to the Jewish people, it is your, this is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the nations. And there is, therefore, I think, a real truth to the idea that, that the Bible is in many ways a political manual, not in, not in kind of like a cheap, you know, like the Democratic National Convention or the GOP convention sense of like it's a tactical way to kind of win friends and create allies. No, but it's a vision for how people should relate to each other. And and it's a and it is a blueprint for creating a virtuous society that enables human flourishing and that enables humans to create their unique pathways to a relationship with with the author of creation. And so in the book of Esther and in the Purim story, that's where you get, I think, the clearest expression of the idea that actually politics, while dangerous, just like free will is dangerous, can be virtuous if you use right. them for virtuous ends. And by the way, to come back to the geopolitical point, the biggest contrast between Haman, who's kind of the political villain of the beginning of the story, and the way the story ends, right? So Esther well, is the main I want to get to the way the story ends because that's yeah. the twist that nobody remembers. Right. We're going to so, get there. But before we do, let's, let's, okay, let's talk a little bit about <laughs> Esther. She has an uncle named Mordecai. Esther's yeah. gorgeous. She wins. I mean, I, we don't have to go through the basics because the point of this episode is not to retell the story of Purim that everybody who's Jewish probably knows. It's to kind of get into some of these exact questions that we've been talking about, such as, you know, how it's in our hands and your insights into it. But just as a recap, let's just talk a little bit about the other big guy, Mordecai, who does not bow and scrape before Haman. Who is he? He's Esther's uncle. And do you think that the book of Esther is a little bit, I've seen this misogynistic because it makes it seem like Esther's just a vessel for Mordecai's advice? It's a you great know, question. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it like, where's Esther's agency? Like, why can't it's she a, be beautiful and brilliant? You know, it's a great question. It's provably, it's by, it's, it's a common question. It's provably wrong syntactically. How do I mean? All right. For the first half of the book or the first, well, first like third of the book, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit more. That is exactly what the book does. And it does it deliberately. Esther is the subject. Esther is actually the only verbs that are applied to her are passive verbs. Uh, Esther is an object throughout the first half of the book. And, you know, while we kind of, we sometimes like to think of like Esther, she goes, she goes through a beauty pageant and she meets her Prince Charming. If you actually read the book, it is a, a harrowing, it's almost like taken, but if it didn't have a happy ending, right? <laughs> right? Like she's like, she's it. like, she's like, again, not, not, not against her will and against Mordecai's will, but, but, you know, she's selected by kind of the king's, by kind of the king's, you know, creepy, pervy, you know, yeah. uh, you know, like Steely. D I like to think of them as like, you know, Steely Dan has that song Cousin Dupree off yeah, of King yeah. Against Nature. Like, you know, this this kind of guy with a skeevy look in his eyes. Yeah. So these like weird agents of the king were on the look for like, you know, beautiful girls. She's like trafficked into the king's harem. And throughout that entire first part of the book, the only Jewish character who is the subject of active verbs is Mordecai. 
all of this shifts. All of this shifts in the fourth chapter. In the fourth chapter, Esther hears that Mordecai is upset, and she doesn't know why. And and she sends to him, you know, a messenger and says, like, what's going on? And Mordecai comes to her and tells her what Haman is plotting. And Esther's kind of attitude is like, well, you know, what can you do? And Mordecai gives this like incredible speech where on the first of all, on the one hand, that's an incredible speech. But on the other hand, it makes you realize that the book in the entire time has actually been setting up Mordecai, not as the main character, but rather as like. Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption, where he's right. like the good, where he's like the sidekick, right? Here's the speech he's, that he he's, gives he's, to her. He's like Rocky's coach, Burgess. Yeah, Meredith. right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And the speech that he gives her, he says, he says, don't think that in the king's palace, you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and salvation will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And then he says, and who knows? most powerful lines in biblical literature he says who knows perhaps you've come to royal dignity for just such a time as this by the way that line ends up reverberating throughout history the week before lincoln issued the the, the emancipation proclamation reverend reverend william weston patton one of the great abolitionists in the north actually arrives at the white house and begs lincoln to emancipate southern slaves and he actually uses that exact line. He says to Lincoln, I'm comparing you to Esther. Who knows if you've come to, to, to presidential well, office? I, for I such think a it's time Catherine Harris, who was the Secretary of State in Florida in 2000, also went back to that line in Esther in the book of Esther when she's like, History's put me in this place for this one purpose. Right. <laughs> we're going to call the election for George W. Bush. <laughs> it's true. Right. right. Exactly. 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 No, you're right. D- that is a line that, like, it's like that people like. And it, the ultimate could, defeat of man bear pig. You could yeah. take it anywhere, <laughs> interestingly. Like you could just oh. like anybody you just could you could be like a completely delusional egotist. And you could be like, well, you know, I'm reading the book of Esther. I'm like Esther. I have right, to be right. this is my moment in history. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And then as soon as that moment happens, everything flips in the book. And all of a sudden, the subject of all the the, the rather the object of all the verbs becomes Mordecai and the subject of all the active, active verbs becomes Esther. So then immediately what happens then is the very, very next line is vat in Hebrew is Vatomer Esther Lashiva Mordecai el Mordechai. Esther, Esther then said to reply to Mordecai and she starts ordering him around and giving him and giving him instructions. And the entire rest of the book, the only active figure is Esther. Now, and I, wanna, I just want to say something. You, you, yeah. and this is all great. I just want to clarify something. Originally, she's in this beauty contest. You know, the king's hence, you know, Cyrus's, sorry, Xerxes's henchmen are like, I know, I know the kind of women that, you know, Xerxes likes in his harem. She goes to the harem. But we see her at the end of the story as Queen Esther. So she's technically the, the queen of the entire Persian Empire. How did, how yeah. did we get from like one of his many hoes to the, you know, his, the, the number one bride? So that seems to be like they're kind of like two beauty pageants in the story, yeah. right? There's one where she, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There's one where she becomes like a member of the harem. There's one where she becomes the queen. So what, what happens is this is in many ways kind of the story of, of, of Jewish peoplehood. And it's, and it's one, I think that's so relatable to lots of diasporas, which is you start out in all of these stories, these diaspora stories as you're in the objects, you're in the as objects. That's how you get into diaspora in the first place. And the question is, are you going to insist on your agency 
I mean, you could, you could, you know, complain, you can moan. And by the way, those are normal human reactions. Like there's, there's lots of lamentation literature in, in the Jewish tradition, but there's also a sense of agency. And Esther actually essentially seizes a political agency for herself and becomes the active part of the story. There's a reason that the book is called the book of Esther, not the book of Mordecai, because there's actually that flip where yeah. Esther actually becomes the active figure in the story. And, and that's, that's the, her trajectory. Okay. All right. So now that we've seen the flip and we've got Esther's agency and then she, she goes to the King and she's like, all right, this Haman guy's got a lot of bad ideas. Let's talk a little bit about that. How did she persuade him? So what's really fascinating is that to return to Lincoln for a second. So Reverend Patton comes and demands, pleads with Lincoln to emancipate the Southern slaves. And he throws that Mordecai line at him. He says, who knows if you've come to the office for such a time as this. Now, the irony, not the irony, but what, what he couldn't have known is that Lincoln, for all the fact that as we know from Patton himself, Lincoln kind of parried all of his arguments and and quibbled with everything he was saying. In that very meeting, Lincoln actually had a draft of the Emancipation Proclamation sitting in his desk, and he'd had it since June, right? All the way, this meeting took place in September. He had it all the way back since June. Lincoln had already written the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. He hadn't issued it yet. Why not? The reason is because Lincoln was waiting for an opportunity to make sure that the Emancipation Proclamation would actually mean something and would land. And until then, the Union hadn't won any substantial victories at all. Lincoln was waiting for any excuse, even a flimsy one, to be able to issue this from a position of strength so that it actually would, would aid the cause. And so he, he, he does. He waits for the Battle of Antietam, which is like this bloody mess, but he manages to kind of portray it as a victory, issues the Emancipation Proclamation. Similarly, right, so the difference between Patton and Lincoln is that Patton's whole attitude was, you know what the right thing to do is. And so once you know what the right thing to do is, you do it, damn the consequences. Lincoln's attitude is, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? Right. And in this case, we want to be effective. There's too much at stake here. And in this respect, Esther is very Lincoln-esque. Esther hears Mordecai tell her that your people are in danger. Now, what you would imagine if this was kind of like a, you know, like a bad high school production is Esther would march into the throne room and, you know, demand to speak to, to Xerxes and, and request, nay, demand that her people be saved and that Haman be, be dispatched. Instead, what she does is she, she plans. She actually makes sure that she has a chance to succeed. She knows that Haman's too powerful and too uh, and too politically secure to take him down just yet. So she invites the king and Haman to a banquet that she plans, thereby flattering Haman into a false sense of security and also being able to suss out what his position is before the king. And she hosts this banquet and gets the king and the king is so happy to be spending time with her and seeing that she's getting involved in politics that he he offers her a boon. You can ask for anything for even half of the kingdom is in his words. And Esther's request is actually not to save her people yet because she knows the time isn't right. What Esther actually asks for is to have another banquet. And she's waiting. She's waiting for uh, for something to happen. And what and her strategy pays off because what happens in between 
is that the king sort of reading his, you know, an insomniac and he's having read to him his kind of book of favors that he owes. And he recalls that much earlier in the story, like Chekhov's gun, <laughs> much, much, much earlier in the story, before we know anything about Esther, Mordecai had actually saved the king from an assassination attempt. And the king all of a sudden goes, who's this Mordecai guy? Have we like paid him back? And turns out, no, we haven't. So then, and it's just at that moment, like it's such a good drama. Like it just at that moment, Haman is rushing into the is rushing into the king's palace because he's had an even better idea for how to torture Mordecai once he's killed him. And he's going to ask the king's permission. And the king sort of sees Haman running and he says, ah, just the guy I wanted to see. What should I do if I want to really honor some ran like some guy who's done a great service for the king? And Haman, because he had just been so honored by Esther, right. assumes that the king is talking about him. And so he says, well, you know, if you wanted to honor, quote unquote, some guy who's done a service for the king, you dress him up in the king's clothes and have him ride through town and have some schnook pull him through the, you know, you know, pull his horse through the town and have everybody shout before him. This is what happens to somebody who does a great service for the king. This person is so honored. And the king goes, brilliant. Here's the guy I want to honor. His name is Mordecai. You may know him. <laughs> uh, and then he goes, and then he goes, by the way, he needs someone to pull his horse. You would totally be great for that role. <laughs> Perfect, right? Yeah. And so all of it, so you could start to see Haman's descent, his political and emotional descent. Yeah, and this is like a, where you want the Book of Esther to have a sad trombone for Haman. Right, right, wah, right. Wah, wah, wah. Exactly, exactly. And, and. It's just as Mordecai's political star is rising and Haman's is falling that Esther now is able to take advantage in the second banquet. She sees what's happening. She knows what's going on. And it's at this point when the king once again offers her this boon up to the half the kingdom and I'll give it to you. You know, that's when that's when, you know, Esther has this this like unbelievable, you know, this like unbelievable moment where, you know, finally the king says to her, you know, what can I give you? And Esther has this beautiful line. It's so every year when I hear it, because, mm -hmm. you know, on, on the holiday of Purim every year, you read the, the book of Esther. And every year when I when I hear it read, I get chills. She says, if I've won your favor, O king, and it pleases the king, it, it works so well in Hebrew, but it works well in English as well. She says, She says, if I've won your favor and it pleases the king, let my life be given to me. And the lives, that's my petition. The lives of my people, that's my request. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, I would have kept my pee, I would have kept silent, but no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. So she she says, and then the king goes, wait a minute, hold on. You're Jewish? And this means that if the Jews are, you're going to be killed? And Mordecai's going to be killed? Who is orchestrating this? And that's when she, you know, points to Haman. He says, it's that guy. And and Haman's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like, that scene at, it's like that scene at the end of Bridge in the River Kwai where yeah. the where the commander sees the sees like the bridge, like the bridge. He sees them, you know, the he sees the the bad guys like shooting the Americans coming to rescue them. And he has this look in his face where he's like in the movie, he goes, what have I done? And it's like this look on his face of like, I'm screwed. Right. And that's kind of Haman at this moment. So so Esther makes a decision that not just to, you know, dunk on people on the Internet and not just to scream and, you know, and, and cry. Savvy. 
She's savvy. She plays um, the influence game correctly, the, in the, the court politics exactly right. Exactly. And, and she does it in a way. In Jewish history, right? I mean, like, one of the yes. many great things we're going to do, by the way, in episode, Ari and I at some point on the on the great Rambam, Moses Ben Maimonides, but Rambam yeah. is, in, is <laughs> an amazing, he's like, he's a remarkable figure, but one of the things that he does is that when he's a, an advisor in the court of the Egyptian caliphate, he, he he's like, has to save Jews, and he's got to like, figure out the ransom of Jews and things when they're kidnapped. And it's like this constant theme. And if you look at like the story of Israel, for example, Chaim Weitzman, and the, there are all these figures who like kind of talk to Harry Truman and get him to see things a certain way. And it's not just a matter of like, I want you to know that I believe the state of Israel has to exist, especially after the Holocaust. How dare you oppose me? It's not that it's the, it's, it's understanding that in the moment in politics, you got to bring people around to your position. You have to persuade people. You have to build a coalition because you can't just, you know, so th this book of Esther is like the, the sort of beginning of all of that, which is a great, it's great. And by the way, you don't have to be Jewish to appreciate the story. It's a lesson for, oh, every, it's, you get, it's a lesson for anybody really, right? It's, it is, <coughs> the, it becomes in fact, one of the most, uh, one of the most evocative and popular stories like in Western civilization, yeah. like just in the, you know, 16th, mid 16th, mid 17th century alone, the 10 versions of this story, 10 major plays produced in produced in France, like six or seven produced in Germany. England has like innumerable versions of it. Sojourner Truth, you know, is is ends up being compared to Esther. This is such a, a powerful story precisely because, you know, our mutual friendly Al Leibovitz likes to quote Leonard Cohen as saying it's a manual for living with defeat. And and that's really what the book of Esther is. It says, look. You're not going to get you're not going to get that perfectly satisfying ending where you get to tell off the bat. like there's there's always there's always a political process to be played because human nature is 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 messy and right. the human experience is is complex. And if you want to and if what you're looking for is light, absolutely conquering darkness and taking no quarter. So then the fantasy yeah, genre watch is Star for Wars. you. you know, don't, exactly. Go watch Star Wars. This is but if this if is what you're looking for, this is for this is Bible for adults. This is grown up. Exactly. Stuff. This is morality for adults. If what you're looking for is, you know, not and by the way, it's not like Game of Thrones, like there is no such thing as good, right? Right. It's 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 what it said, the premise of the book of Esther, like much of the Bible, like all of the Bible, the premise of the book of Esther is if you're looking to actually build virtue in the real world, this is how it's done. And Esther, in many respects, is the ultimate, therefore, kind of modern hero because she provides us with a real, relatable human story for how to actually implement goodness and morality in the real world. She's somebody who is, who is a victim. She's somebody who is trafficked. She's somebody who who is passive for so much of her story. And yet when the time comes, she's able to seize the agency that she has transform not only her own circumstances and the circumstances of her people. But and this is very important. The story actually doesn't end when Haman is killed. That's right, we're like, going to get let's get to that. But before we do, has anyone even in literature tried to give us the Haman backstory? It is this mystery. Because it's not just like what motivated him yeah. to want to kill all the so, Jews, but how did he rise to the level of prominence? Because I have to be thinking to myself, everything I know about Cyrus, he, 
Heyman would have gotten nowhere with a guy like Cyrus because Cyrus was, you know, he is sometimes credited as the founder of human rights. Cyrus was the, you know, live and let live emperor. He was the guy who was like, all right, you want to worship who you want to worship? It's fine. Just pay my He's also a founder, right? Xerxes is a Nepo baby. <laughs> well, fair enough. He's a Nepo baby. But there were at least, I mean, in the case of Darius, I, Xerxes had setbacks. Right. But I'm just saying in the, for those are the three biggies. I mean, like there were really bad Persian emperors after that. And then as we talked about in our last episode together, Ari, then guy by the name of Alexander of Macedon comes right. pretty much ends that family um, anyway, um, ends that empire so like but like i would is anyone done the like how did Haman rise to prominence so the ancient the ancient rabbis do this and oh, it's brilliant great. okay tell me about that so yeah. one of the so Haman in the book of esther is called an agagi an agagite it's not clear what that is it sounds like some sort of like you know local tribe from somewhere within the Persian Empire. Right. The rabbis did because they're such sensitive readers of the text and they were so, so alert and literarily, literarily sensitive to, you know, those Kendrick allusions to Tupac songs. Yeah. And and also the rabbis are very playful and whimsical in a more in a in a deeply morally serious way. But they noted, hey, that name, Agag, actually Agag, actually appears earlier in the Bible. There is a character named Agag earlier in the Bible. He's the king of the Amalekites in the days oh, of Saul that's and Samuel. Right. And he is the, and he is kind of like the last scion of this nation that seeks, at least in the Bible, that seems to care about nothing other than tormenting and slaughtering the Jews. We first meet them when the Israelites flee Egypt. The first thing that happens after they cross the Red Sea is they're assaulted by this by this vicious kind of tribe of the Amalekites. The Amalekites set upon the men, women, and children and try to kill them. And it's only by the grace of God that the Israelites kind of managed to escape and beat them back. And throughout, and actually throughout history, sort of God says to, God says to the Jewish people, you must eradicate the Amalekites because they're a stain upon the human experience. No other people are treated this way. To what the about same the degree. Even the Canaanites are actually is a within within biblical and Jewish law. There actually is a difference between how the two are treated. Okay, you're allowed to accept surrender and quarter from from one, but not the other. The and in fact, you know, if you just look at kind of the trajectory of what happens in in you know in the Bible. Oh no, wait a minute. What about the the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? So there, no, there, God destroys them, right? The, oh, Abraham, okay, Abraham, right. I see your point. Abraham yeah. tries to save them, right? Yeah. Even though they're terrible, that's another whole story. Yeah. The Amalekites are like this vicious group that seeks, and they represent this this kind of, to the extent that there is a character in the Bible that 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 represents the abyss, just oblivion and destruction and chaos and evil. It's the Amalekites, which and, is an important concept, not just today, but especially in the ancient world, where you know there was a lot of terrible things that could befall people and that you had no control over. So yeah. Now, morally speaking. It actually is important that rabbinic literature and Jewish tradition develops this idea, which it implements across the board, which is that we have no idea how to identify Amalekites anymore. Like they've all been mixed up by the various exiles and, and, and you know, displacements in the ancient world. Like there are no real Amalekites anymore. However, you're right. It is important for any people in moral tradition to have 
inability to say yes the the spirit of of you know of amalek is 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 facing us like there there is evil in the world it's important to okay so it we, out. so so the rabbis believe that haman is somehow a so descendant they, of a god right who is an amalekite who's just and there's just a, a, a rotten no good group of people and the reason, and that kind of feeds back into that dark and terrifying mystery of anti-Semitism. We have no explanation in the Bible at all for why the Amalekites set upon the men, women, and children, right? The, sort of the, the, the old people and the children as the, the Israelites are fleeing Egypt. They have no explanation for why they do it. And similarly, you know, we know what Haman says. We know, you know, we know the excuses that he gives for why he's tormenting this this basically vulnerable helpless vulnerable minority within the persian empire but we don't really know why this is happening because again it's the it's the dark cthulhu like chaotic mystery of of anti-semitism it's just the oblivion it's the abyss all right and i appreciate that but i'm just saying i would like a talented novelist or somebody <laughs> to give me like a story of Haman that's like more not i i, I accept that he's evil i'm not pro Haman here i'm just saying <laughs> how did he rise to such prominence like did he, he must have had some kind of skill he must have done something you know what i mean like what was the you know what's the story of like not just why he you know wanted to kill all right, the what Jews, called him like, to the attention of what, the yeah of like the where were, he must have had something that made him indispensable at the time to the court of xerxes yeah i mean it's it's interesting the book i think also very deliberately gives us no insight into this it plays into one of the readings of Xerxes in the book of the character of, you know, Ahasuer, you know, Ahasuerus Xerxes in the book of Esther as a buffoon, you know, and, and part of the challenge of politics is that oftentimes the people who occupy the offices that have so much influence over our lives are are not the kind of people we would wish to occupy them. And by the way, not um, just in the story of the ancient Persians, there are if you read the book of Kings, there are plenty of horrible uh, yeah, kings of Israel <laughs> as well. We, yeah, I mean, we we know Solomon and we know David. They're great, but there are a lot of awful kings who make terrible decisions. And even Solomon's dis, you know reign ends in disgrace. You know, you could well, one very serious and and compelling. It's not the only way, but one very compelling way to read the Bible's view on royalty. And this is one, one way at least that the rabbis read it, although there's the opposite view as well. But one way that the rabbis read the Bible's view on monarchy is that it's a critique of monarchy and that David, the, well, wait, the prophet, uh, the judges say what they, they Israelites are like, we want a King. We want a King. Are you, you sure? Careful what you say, ask for. Uh, right. Careful what you ask for. <laughs> right. There's one, there's one view in rabbinic literature and it be, this became very popular amongst the Republican theorists of the 17th century, particularly John Milton. And eventually Thomas Paine adopted this view as well in common sense, which is that the Bible's critique of monarchy is basically that the Israelites are punished for asking for a king. What's the punishment right. that they, that they're given? They get a king. <laughs> right. Yeah. I love that. Right. All right. right. So we've set it up. This is, I, this, by the way, thank you again. This has been a wonderful conversation, but it's comes to this thing, the often forgotten coda to the story. So we, all right, before we get there, we should just say the lots are drawn. There's going to be, Oh, wait a second. Okay. Yeah, I so I have to I have to leave in just a few minutes to take my my son oh, to okay. the doctor. Right. So, but but I, but I can wrap it up. Yeah, <laughs> let's wrap it up really quick. But we should just say really quickly. Yeah, yeah. How about gallows, we, could do, we could do the ending. Yeah, gallows for the Jews, but really it's only Haman. 
And by the way, what do we do? This I love this about Purim. Payment in his forever in history ridiculed. What do you do with a powerful tyrant that is evil? You ridicule him. That's the worst thing you can do. It's a great lesson today for Russians who want to get rid of Putin and uh, North Koreans who want to get rid of Kim. That's for later. But now let's talk about the coda about, that no one ever talks about, which is the Jews behaving badly. Okay. And by the way, I, I tweeted, I think I tweeted this a few months ago, but but someone someone said something about like, man, like, because, you know, the Jewish community kind of like semi-famously excommunicated Spinoza, kind of the the great Western intellectual and philosopher. And someone said something on Twitter, like, why can't the Jews just like, it's probably, it's time to like welcome Spinoza back into into the arms of Judaism. Like, why can't the Jews forgive Spinoza? And I think I, I tweeted something like, listen, in the Jewish community, we still boo every time we hear the name of some random Persian bureaucrat from like <laughs> 2,500 years ago. We're right. not forgiving Spinoza. Like, wait wait another 3,000 years and maybe we'll think about it. <laughs> That's great, yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's talk about it. Yeah. The riot. is the coda. The riot. Yeah. Jews behaving yeah. badly. So this is actually, I think, one of the most powerful parts of the book because the Haman, you could end the story with yeah. Haman executed. Now, the, 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 that's the by the way how us, the holiday ends for most Jews, right? Yeah. Meaning, yeah. I mean, I know that you read it. I'm just saying like most, we're happy. We're just, we're happy. We in, survived, right? You're in Sunday school and Jews and you're like learning about, you know, whatever the Bible it ends there and it's a nice story, but there's another part. Yes. Yes. So what happens next is the king says, to, so Esther and Mordecai say, well, listen, can you cancel the decree against the Jews, right? There's a whole day set aside for people to slaughter Jews. Can you stop them? And the king says, and this is again, part of the satire of Persia is like, well, when the king makes a decree, not even the king can cancel it. That's how powerful the decree is. But what I can say is I can issue another decree that could potentially counteract the first one. So what Esther and Mordecai ask for is they say, give the Jews the ability and anyone who allies with them to arm themselves and, and slaughter those who were going to slaughter them. And the classic question is why? Right. Why not just have the king make a decree that the Jews can hide in any city they want, lock the gates and the day will pass and then it'll be done. Moreover, and, and I think and to the extent that that's a question, the you know, it's usually framed as like, why are these Jews like Jews are supposed to be nice and passive? Like, why are they killing people? Why is like you said, Jews behaving badly? I think the premise of the question is is like morally twisted, which is on that reading of like that question presupposes a reading of the story where Esther's heroism is that and Mordecai's heroism secondarily is that they protect their own. And this, by the way, is exactly how during the, the wars of religion in the wake of the Reformation, this is exactly how everybody is using the book of Esther. The supporters of Queen Elizabeth and Queen Anne, you know, her mother think that, you know, the, the, the great Protestant Queens were Esther you know, fighting against Catholic tyranny. The Catholics think that they're Esther fighting against Protestant tyranny. Right. Everybody right, right, thinks right. that Esther's role is to save her own skin and that the skin of that of her people. When in fact, Esther and Mordecai are quite a bit more ambitious because politics is not merely a means. Meaning for politics to be as lofty 
as the chokhmah ubina, as the wisdom and understanding that the Bible actually uses to describe itself. For politics, for politics to really be lofty, you have to take them seriously as an engine for virtue, however imperfect. And so what Esther and Mordecai actually are after is a better Persian society, not just a better situation for the Jews. They actually want a better Persian society. Now, Persian society was one in which, if you think about the logic of the story, some random bureaucrat came along and decreed that on a particular day, for no reason that seems to be explained to anybody in the rest of the empire, random people can just arise, take up their weapons, and slaughter the entirety of a vulnerable minority within the empire. Why is this able to... So first of all, it's an, it's an unbelievable indictment of the moral fabric of the Persian Empire. Right. Why is this even possible? As we said before, Haman takes advantage of the geopolitical instability of Xerxes' regime by saying, listen, your treasury is empty because of the foreign adventures that you've engaged in. I can shore up your financial circumstances. Yeah, right. The only thing I ask in return is that you give me this vulnerable minority to torment and ultimately to exterminate. So... What Mordecai and and Esther do, first of all, is they say to, to Xerxes, it's not enough for us to hide from these perpetrators. These actually, it is these people that are making your empire rotten from within. We actually need to fight them. And we need to, and we need to make a statement that this kind of thing is not going to be tolerated in the empire. And so they say, this is actually a fight. This is a, this much like the Civil War, right? Lincoln says. You know, Lincoln says in the second inaugural that, that, you know, he 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 worries, but also expects that the war will not be over until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be paid for by one drawn by the sword. And sometimes you actually need to fight a war in order to save the soul of your nation. And in this case, Esther and Mordecai say the kind of people who would take up arms on a whim to to kill innocents right. within the empire need to be punished, number one. And so that's what happens. So it's not so much Jews behaving badly as Jews helping Persia save itself, because it's not only Jews who are fighting them. It's all the people who were in the words of the book but of I Esther. They were like just, there was like rampages, though, where I mean, how do you know that everyone they kill is guilty? Well, because the only well, because There's the only no judicial, people, judicial process on this, it's not like, you know, I mean, like, well, it's true. But the, the only people like court or something and say, all right, you know, did you or so did the, you not want to go with Haman's plan? So the only people, so what happens is that it's not like, these aren't like judicial killings. This is like the civil war. Anyone who takes up arms yeah, is part is of the battle. This is violence right? though. It's, an, it's, a, it's a weird thing, but you could almost argue, listen, I'm not, I, I, I don't think it's mob, I, I don't think it's mob violence any more than the battle of Gettysburg is mob violence, right? Like anyone who took up arms and put on a gray Confederate uniform was fighting for the other team, basically. Okay. That's what's happening in Persia. So. And then the way the story ends is actually very, 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 very important. The last words of the book of Esther are the fo are as follows: that you know Xerxes basically the Hebrew is Vayasam Hamelech Achashverosh Mas Al which means that Xerxes placed the tax, placed taxes on the land, on the land, and all the islands of the sea, and he does this kind of at the advice of Mordecai. And now every year, kind of like in the, you know, when Jews read it, whenever it talks about the taxes, everybody boos because no one likes taxes. But but what's the significance of this? Mordecai, who's now elevated to the king's new second in command in place of Haman, is doing what Joseph does, which is advising the king on economic policy. And he's doing it in such a way that now the king's treasury is going to be stabilized. 
by having a regular tax system, the king's not going to be at the at the mercy of 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 opportunistic Haman's who can bribe the king into destroying the rights of innocence within the empire. And so it's actually So important. you don't see the end of it as because there are a lot of people who would say that that was a Jewish riot and that innocents oh. were caught up in in the in the retribution. Sure, I think the book actually goes out of its way to say that that's not the case. In fact, okay. it describes it describes two types of Persians. It describes those who were mityahadim, which I think people later on in history th- thought to translate as became Jewish, but that's not what the text describes at all. It describes people who allied with the Jews. So right. basically on the on the the day of Purim, right on the day that Haman had designated to be a to be a day of destruction of the Jewish people, the only way that it occurred was if a citizen of Persia took up arms to slaughter people. If you didn't take up arms, then you had no, then then you weren't participating in the day. So Persians basically make a choice. Some of them stay home and do nothing. Some of them take up arms against the Jews. Those people are, as far as the king is concerned, their lives are forfeit. And then there are those people, Persians, who take up arms in defense of the Jews. And those people are heroes. And that's basically what the book of Esther describes. It doesn't describe Jews like rampaging through a, through a town. What it describes is a pitched battle between those who showed up with, with swords and guns, you know, so to speak, on the day ready to kill to kill them some Jews and to you know to string up some k words and yeah. people who met them with resistance all right that's i i appreciate that i don't know i have to go back and find i've seen <laughs> interpretations of it that it's sort of like huh you know it didn't end cuz usually it's like we think of it as ending with just the one guy but it's not just the yeah. one guy yeah all right well with that i know you got to run Rabbi Ari Lam, as always, this is so great. I know my audience really appreciates these episodes, and we will have you back soon. We're going to do Maimonides. We're going to do more. And I can't, <laughs> say, I can't say enough. So thank you so much, Ari. I absolutely love it. Happy Purim. <laughs> All right. Happy Purim. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.